Um, welcome back. Um, I'm David Wilkinson, the editor of the Oxford Review, and today with us we've got Gareth Locke, who's um, uh, written a book called Under Pressure, Diving Deeper into Human Factors. Um, and before you kind of log out thinking, diving, I'm not into diving, um, I think you need to listen to this. He's got a lot of really interesting lessons for um, people in organisations, but also dealing with kind of errors and things like that. Welcome, Gareth. Thanks very much, David, for uh, for inviting me along. Um, since meeting we had five years ago, I think it's at Shrewdman was when we met. Yeah, it's been some time, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's been some time. Um, so, do you, I, I tell you what, do you, do you just want to introduce yourself, uh, kind of tell us what you do and something about your own interests, your work and your research? Yeah, sure. So, um, my sort of, my, what shaped where I am it's been 25 years in the Royal Air Force and I left in February 2015. And I was um, flight crew and uh, an aircrew instructor on the Hercules transport aircraft. I then went into systems engineering, requirements management, research and development. Um, and that just really gave me a big, I want to say systems view of the world, trying to look at things rather than silos, but how stuff goes together. Um, people, um, organizations, culture, all of the sort of human factor stuff that, that makes stuff happen, really. Um, and then, I say, in February 2015, I left the Air Force and I set up my own company, started to work in the oil and gas sector, teaching um, what we call sort of soft skills, but better term is critical decision making, teamwork, leadership, situation awareness, communications, and understanding this impact of things called performance shaping factors on how, how do we make decisions as effectively as possible? Now that carried on for a little bit and then the bottom fell out the oil market and training is the first thing to go. But that sort of got me going into where my real passion was about, which is improving the safety and performance of divers, sports divers, military divers, commercial divers, uh, taking those same non-technical skills from the aviation industry and applying it into another domain. Um, so that we can operate more safely. And um, that's been pretty successful. I've taught literally all around the world, sort of Seattle, Los Angeles, through the States, Europe, Middle East, Australia and New Zealand, and um, was, was in sort of uh, Bali earlier this year. There are some downsides to the travel. Uh, you do get to get to some nice places. All the people go, oh, you're great. You get to go to so-and-so. It's like, yeah, but I'm normally delivering a class and it's normally to a consumer level. So they're not going to pay for me to hang around. Um, so I, I don't get to see places very often. And then you sort of alluded to, you know, the sort of book. And that was March last year because it had sort of inklings of trying to condense all of the, the teachings that I do into a book that people could then use. And uh, it, it's quite a meaty tune. There's sort of 110,000 words in it. Um, but it, it, it gets this topic out there using lots of different stories and and in hindsight you go oh, that was obvious that was going to happen and what i do is i pick it apart in the context of human factors and non-technical skills so that everybody can learn uh, and that it's is the, the story, biggest challenge actually. really interesting stories and um and then to try and can you know bring more of that to life last november um filmed a documentary in hawaii and, and the reason it was in Hawaii, it wasn't because it was a nice place, it's because there's a fatality happened 18 months prior to that. And I was working with the widow to tell a very 
context-rich, emotional, powerful story about how that accident happened, which as normal human behavior, we would just focus on the last sort of five or 10 minutes of what happened. And we'd normally go, duh, stupid. Why didn't you make sure that your oxygen cylinder was turned on when actually we look at the whole story coming up to that and realize that this was just the final straw that, that breaks the camel's back. And there were loads of social and technical issues, uh, cultural issues that made it really hard not to um, or to, to get off the to be able to say stop this isn't the right thing to be doing um, and telling that story both from the emotional context of, of the people involved but also with me giving a sort of science and a theory behind why they made the decisions they did yeah that's uh, that's that that's really interesting so I used to be a police officer. I was an accident investigator years ago on traffic. Mm. And um, so some of the fatal accidents, particularly, we used to go right back in the history to see what, what, you know, kind of what are the antecedents, what are the things that have led to this that we could learn from, particularly kind of large scale accidents. That's Definitely. Really interesting. Definitely. Cool. And, and unfortunately, I think part of the problem is that, you know, we, we want an immediate, simple answer. And, and accidents don't happen because of simple things. They happen as as deviations from normal behaviors, when people are often involved in really high risk, complicated tasks, they will spend a lot of time making sure they manage those risks. Yeah. It is normal work, normal behavior that we end up drifting away from. Yes, yeah. And, and then there are a whole series of factors that lead to those drifts, I suppose. Yeah. Yes, okay. So you recently published Under Pressure, um, diving deeper into human factors. Um, can you just give a, a kind of a brief overview before we dive deeper into a couple of issues that you raise? Kind of what's the book about and why did you end up writing it? Yeah, I suppose the uh, as a high level summary, it, it looks at human behavior as part of a system, a wider sort of cultural technical system um, and that looks at um, peer pressure it looks at the training system it looks at the environment that, that the people are operating in and the equipment they're using and, and really is, is to look at a sport which is a is a high risk sport because the consequences can easily be fatal being underwater um, fortunately the probabilities are quite small so what i was looking at was actually can we tell stories from survivors from those who've had near misses and close calls and get them to under, you know get them to tell that context rich story and, and the book is broken down into different chapters that look at specific elements so things like systems thinking having how does a system operate and not just hardware technical which is what people normally think about as a system but a social technical system how people operate as part of the training as how they interact with their equipment as, as a team, as individuals, as the peer pressures they're under. Then we look at concepts of just culture and psychological safety. How do we create an environment where people are able to proactively prevent something from going on? And then a just culture is reactively looking back and saying, we're all fallible. How do we make those mistakes? Um, can we learn from them and, and not throw the metaphorical rocks at, at others for being stupid when actually it must have made sense? And then going through the, the non-technical skills themselves of situation awareness, decision-making, communications, teamwork, leadership and followership, 
performance shaping factors and then a, a little bit on incident reporting. Um, each of the chapters is, is standalone. So if you want to learn about decision making or teamwork and leadership, you can go into those specific chapters. But actually, the whole book runs from start to end that tells stories that you know later chapters refer to stuff that was was earlier on because these these things these skills these traits behaviors don't exist in isolation and it's like well we're going to develop leadership well to be an effective leader you've got to understand how to communicate you've got to understand how a team works how it develops you've got to understand how you pick up information situation awareness and decision making and the biases that uh, that we have yeah. and, and I, I wrote it because there isn't anything out there. There are technical books in the, um, I'm gonna say the traditional safety industries, oil and gas, healthcare, aviation, those books exist. Nothing, including all the programs that I teach, exist in the space of, of diving. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Interesting. So a niche of one, it's me. A niche of one, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's the best niche to be in. <laughs> Hopefully if there's... Uh, well, it does. Really it possible. just means you've got a big education process to do to start with, to, to yes. people understand. And that's really what the book was about. And, and the, the hard part is people go, oh, I already, I already know that. You know, well, what do I need to read a book about teamwork for or decision making? I make decisions. Yeah, it's like, yeah we do. And, and everybody who you know, reads it and, and, and does the training with me goes, oh, there's a lot more to it than this. And, and, and once seen, it's very difficult to unsee. And, and yeah. people start looking at the world differently, which is really what my goal is about, is, is trying to influence attitudes and behaviors towards human error and, and the violations that we make. Yeah, and it's those lessons that, that move us out of the the kind of diving context into organizations into just a human context kind of life and things and and it's those things that i'd i'd really like to explore but before we do you kind of the the title of the book is under pressure diving deeper into human factors what do you actually mean by human factors what does that mean um it, it's a it's a it's a huge topic but it's simplified as or made simple as making it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing. Um, and, and I use the analogy of Homer in his nuclear power station. Um, you know, he, he's got a, a terrible physical interface that he's got to work with, which is very similar to what the sort of the old nuclear power stations look like, dials, buttons, everything going on. Um, he's got his own physiological needs, donuts and coffee to stay <laughs> alert. And he's got the social pressures and the cultural pressures of Mr. Burns sitting there either physically or metaphorically on his shoulder going, keep the power on, keep the power on. And, and he manages all of these things in real time. You know, he creates safety and performance dynamically with what he's presented. But then at sort of five minutes to the hour when his blood sugar level is going down, it all kicks off and the displays don't make sense. He can't understand what's going on. Uh, and so he's just pressing buttons because that's because he hasn't been taught how to deal with this. He's not had those high pressure situations and he's still got mr burns going keep the power on keep the power on because otherwise he's going to be fired so it's how people sit within systems um, not just factors of the human which is what people normally think about as human factors i.e our internal decision making well it's just being a human actually it's how we sit in the system uh, of the hardware the documentation 
other people uh, and, and the sort of physical and, and, and cultural environments. Yeah, it's yeah, it's and it, that those kinds of things are, are, are critical, and it's it's and particularly in the moment when the training fails, when the situation goes beyond something that you've actually been trained in. Um, yeah. So I, I spent a long time doing disaster management at Cranfield and things like that, and and everything's fine whilst it's in the system, yeah. uh, the system that you're prepared for, that you've trained for, you understand how it all works. It's the moment that doesn't happen is a disaster happens or there's something else happens is how do people then actually go beyond that and still yeah. perform in a way that actually doesn't have kind of drastic consequences for people. That's, and that's actually what we used to explain with the oil and gas workers was that, you know, non-technical skills, these sort of uh, crew resource management is another term. Um, they have benefit in normal operations because the goal of, of these is to create a, as an accurate as possible shared mental model within the team so that people know what's happening now, why it's happening and what's likely to happen in the future. Um, so that they have benefit in normal operations, but they become critical, as, as you've just talked about, when you step outside of normal operations, abnormal operations, and you have to um, understand how do we create a system that has the capacity to fail safely. We've got to be able to think outside the box. We, we're not being taught this stuff. So now we are second guessing. We are trying to pattern match as best we can as to what's going to happen in the future and recognize that how do I how do I look beyond my immediate decision so that I don't add metaphorically more um, fuel to the fire um, when, when it goes wrong. Yeah, make the situation worse. And, and, you know, that's not an infrequent thing, particularly in disaster situations yeah. when people are actually taken out of their their immediate experience and, and understanding. So you, know, you referred to this, uh, you know, this concept of non-technical skills. What does that mean? Yeah, so in sort of late 60s, um, aviation industry was suffering with pilots flying aircraft into the ground. Um, it was pilot error and, and they were just like, well, hang on, we've got professionals here. And so they started to look at, hang on, why is this happening? And, and that was when cockpit voice recorders were coming in and, and flight data recorders were coming in. And they started to realize that actually there were people on the flight deck who knew that it was going wrong, but they were unable to share that information with the captain or whoever was flying the aircraft for a whole bunch of reasons. So they came up with a training program, which started off as, as cockpit resource management. And it was this bit that says, how do we increase the assertiveness and shared mental model within the team and then we had events uh, like manchester um, with the air tours fire we had um, kegworth um, where the back end crew the cabin crew knew that something wasn't quite right and they said, well hang on a minute the cabin crew are part of this team and there was literally a you know the cabin wars that there's the back end mm. and here's us sky gods at the front um, and we don't talk to each other so they went, well, hang on a minute, we need to have crew resource management. Um, so they started to develop this in the aviation industry. And then healthcare recognized that, hang on a minute, there's, there's value to this because our surgeons are in a similar situation. They've been trained for excellence in technical skills um, of how to do an operation, but they're operating with a team of anesthetists, scrub nurses, nurses, all of these other people. And they said, well, we're not a crew. So that, that crew resource management doesn't necessarily help us because labeling is, you know, as you know from your research, labeling has a 
huge impact on whether or not it's applicable yes. to me. Well, I'm not a crew, therefore it doesn't apply to me. So with the work up in Aberdeen um, in Edinburgh, they came up with a non-technical skills for surgeons program, NOTS, and then there was also anaesthetists, non-technical skills. Um, and, and I brought non-technical skills into the diving environment uh, because, well, we don't operate as crews. We, we have these. But then people go, oh, technical, non-technical. And exactly the question you've just said, mm. well, hang on, what relevance is that? And, and I try to break it down and say in the context of diving, it would be about buoyancy control. It would be about propulsion in the water. It would be about taking photos or surveying a wreck. Those are technical skills. The non-technical skills are the bits that basically make that work effectively. And in the non-diving environment, that could be making widgets. It could be about drugs and quality control. It could be actually in a business software programming. And in fact, we, we, I was involved in a project last year in, in Portugal, developing teams where they talk about agile and scrum they didn't know what these non-technical skills were. Nobody taught them how to be part of a team, how to communicate, how to lead, how to debrief. Um, and, and it's like, well, there you go. You're, you're now a team. You're a bunch of people working together. You're a team. And we go, no, actually, this is what it's about. And there was some big light bulb moments of, oh, so that's what a team is about then. Yeah, it's all those interconnectors, isn't it, that, that makes the whole system work and it's not one person. And, you know, the example that you gave is, is a really, really good one about surgeons uh, and in the operating theatre. And the old traditional model was really the surgeon was God, whatever the surgeon said went. But what happens, you know, you've got this team of people around you or this group of people around you. You've got all these eyes and ears who are all noticing things do they have the legitimacy for saying, hang on a minute, there's a problem here that you're not noticing. And, and I know in the aviation industry, they call it the cockpit gradient. Yeah. This, this, the authority the, gradient. Yeah, exactly. Cross the, the what gradient? gradient? Authority, uh, authority gradient. Oh, authority. Or, yeah. 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 Or, or cross cockpit is the, is, is the aviation term, but yeah, it's, it's this yeah. hierarchy. Um, and in fact, that was one of the motivators for the documentary I put was a, a documentary called just a routine operation by Martin Bromley whose wife died in a routine operation. Um, and it's about an eight and nine minute clip that talks about that situation. The anesthetists were, had sedated his wife, but they couldn't intubate her and they couldn't ventilate her. Uh, and after, I think about 20 odd minutes, they realized that this wasn't gonna work and they needed to put it back into recovery. But in the meantime, there had been nurses coming in um, and just saying, look, do you need a hand? We've got an ICU bed sorted and no, no, just dismissive. And so Martin has, has leads the clinical human factors group in the UK and his work has been instrumental in changing how human factors and, and non-technical skills is, is developed in the healthcare industry. Um, it's fantastic work. Yeah, it is. I, I've seen some of it and certainly we've, we've done quite a lot of this in kind of disaster management and some of the work that I've done with teams over the, over the mm. years these kinds of areas and you know we you know things like the, the importance of proper debriefing after incidents you know but also regular debriefing in order so that people can understand the non-technical side of things as well as the technical side of things you know how did this work were you listening all of those kinds of things um, and, and they're the kinds of skills that you get in things like the military um, mm -hmm. The RAF use it a lot, the military use it a lot, the police use it a lot, but once you get into organizations, 
there's this kind of you know this the the speed of things of them actually being able to just sit back and yeah. do a debrief and they think oh well you know what's the point it's done <laughs> oh, just and, and it's often there's this piece that says we only only do a debrief when something went wrong <laughs> and and well it didn't go wrong therefore let's move on and, mm. and you think well no it's about how does normal work work you know what are the uh, these mm. shortcuts that, that people will take you know you've got a bunch of rules and regulations processes um as, as that's how we're going to do stuff and then you give it to the workers who go that ain't gonna work and, and off they go and and so you lose that um organizational learning that corporate knowledge mm. um and so you know when i go and work in um sort of i'm gonna say traditional business environments and i'm working with project managers and things so do you build a debrief time a reflection time into your project oh yeah but it, it's often one of the first things that, that gets binned when we're running late um as because actually we're not very good well hang on if you're running late on every project surely there's some learning to be had at that stage to understand what those pressures are and build that into your next plan so try and make that um that debrief time sacred because that's where the learning is and you know you sort of intimated about aviation and military aviation a sortie wasn't over until we'd finished the debrief um you know we'd land we hand the aircraft back to the engineers, we taxi back, you know, we get the bus back to the squadron, then we'd have the debrief uh, and, and then we go home and that would be the end of it, you know, or there would be some carry-ons from, from lessons learned. But even if we'd just done, say, a 16-hour day uh, and it was just a normal route flying as opposed to a tactical low-level mission, um, we would have time in the bus where we'd grab 10 or 15 minutes mm -hmm. while the engineer was handing the books back and things like that, we'd sit there and go, okay, lessons learned. What do we do well? What do we need to do more of and what are we going to do less of next time and that's what you need yep. but it gets the mindset that says we are a continuously learning organization team whatever mm. so we can get better yeah i used to do that with my shifts in in the police they were a bit startled at first um but actually what i got out of that was i started to learn an awful lot about what i wasn't doing and what i wasn't listening to once they got over the shock of like a senior officer asking them and they realized that I wasn't actually going to beat them up for telling me, but I needed, I needed that information. I didn't know because quite often we don't see our own failures. Oh, big time. Um, um, and I, it becomes crucial. And that's, there's two parts that becomes really difficult to try and bring that into business is a for the leadership, the senior leadership to find the time uh, to go right and, and recognize the value. Well, once they recognize the value, they'll find the time. The other side of it is, as you just intimated, is this bit that, oh, the boss is here. What have we done wrong? Why is the senior officer come into the office um, to, or, or the T-bar just to have a chat? And, and you're right, the first couple of times, it's like, okay, there's a spy in the camp. We're, we're not gonna say anything. And then you realize actually, and there are ways of accelerating that engagement process by talking about your own fallibility and, and, and showing your own vulnerability as, as a leader to say you know what i make mistakes i don't know everything you are the experts at the front line i wasn't in the front line you know 20 years ago mm. things have changed <laughs> two simple questions I, I i get you know trying to get leaders to to ask is what works and what sucks mm. because you can get a conversation going from that once you've opened it then you can disappear down those those sort of really important pieces mm. but importantly do something with it Mm. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than, than telling the boss all of the stuff that's going wrong and they go, okay, thanks very much. 
and then nothing happens. Yes. Um, because you sit there and go, well, that was a waste of time. I'm not going to bother doing anything now. I'll, yeah. I'll just tell you what you want to hear um, and, and move on. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, one of the first times that I came into this, the, the kind of feedback culture with this thing. So when I was, I went on to traffic as a police officer. So I went off and did the advanced driving course, came back full of beans, you know, having passed and then went on to the traffic unit. And the first day I was double crewed. The, the guy I was um, working with uh, sat in the passenger seat, said, come on, we'll, we'll go. And for the next half hour, he just critiqued me. Yeah. And I felt about like two inches big. And I thought, I thought I was good at this. I'm absolutely not. And he, he pulled over and he said, right, okay, I think you need to learn some things. Like we're professionals here. And yeah. when you're in the passenger seat, you do the same to me because that's how we learn. And, you know, at the speeds that we travel at, particularly during chases, an inch or two inches on the line can make the hugest difference and can make the difference between life and death. So we're forever trying to improve. And you're going to have to get used to getting this feedback because that's what we do. And I was like, and I remember going home thinking, I can't drive. <laughs> so, and then years later, when I was at Cranfield, I went and um, did some work with the Red Arrows. And I watched one of their debriefs and I was like, whoa, <laughs> I thought we would, we were tough on each other. Flip it heck. And they were doing like millimeters out. Yeah. And, and what's really, you know, being involved in that sort of situation is, is you leave the person and the ego at the door yeah. on the way in. And, and that sort of ceremonial bit of, you know, there's the helmet, it's got my name on it. I am now that formation position. I'm not John, Billy, Gareth, whatever it is. And, and the difference between critical feedback and criticism yeah. is, is people go, well, it's the same thing. You're like, no, it's not. And it's also teaching people, you know, we, we teach people how to give feedback. Often we don't teach people how to receive feedback, yeah. which is to sit there and go, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because this <laughs> is for performance. This isn't yeah. about you. You know, everybody's getting it. And, and it's, it's just, and it is exactly what you're saying. It's learning to deal with your own ego. And um, I must admit, when I first came across it, it was, it was a bit of a shock. Um, and then, as I say, years later, when I watched the Red Arrows doing it, I thought, mm, actually, these are professionals. <laughs> you know, There's but they've got to. Reason. Yeah, definitely. You know, cool. <laughs> great. Anyway. Um, yeah, well, it was a great, great segue down there. That's it. <laughs> yeah, what, what, one, yeah one, one of the things that you talk about in the book that really caught my eye was that this idea of the sharp end and the blunt end. Can mm. you explain this a little bit more? Yeah, and, and it, it comes, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in that book comes from the safety industry. And, and this concept that we have um, sharp end workers, they're the people who are doing stuff. And in the safety industry, that could be, you know, the, the, uh, the, the roustabouts on the rig, or it could be the, the guys doing the sheet metal work, or it could be pouring the iron on the, the, the workforce, at, you know, at the, the cold face, the sharp end of a business. And, and they're the guys that are having to adjust and adapt to the, the sort of the operational tempo, the, the old equipment that they're having to deal with, um, new tasks, the pressures and everything that are going on. So this is the sharp end of the business. And when things go wrong, often we focus on the sharp end, those people who didn't do what they were supposed to do. And that, that hindsight bias that allows us to go, ah, oh, that was obvious that was going to happen. And you sit and they go, well, they've done it loads and loads loads of times before and they haven't had an issue what's changed so the sharp end is is that bit the blunt end is management leadership hr legal regulator 
all of the um, the people way up in, in, in the system. And, and the perverse situation is that when things go wrong, we, we often focus on the sharp end because they're the people that have done it. And what we'll do is we'll fix the sharp end worker because it won't happen again. Well, actually, unless, you know, if you understand systems thinking and, and, and that sort of stuff, unless you change the blunt end and you change that, then actually these people just inherit a system um, and, and they do the best they can. And, in, you know, trying to get across to the leadership, the management teams, that they have a huge effect, um, influence over people. And, and there's a term that you use in, in one of the, the, the organizations I work for, Paradigm, be mindful of the shadow you cast. And from this, the, the taller you are, the longer the shadow is. Um, and nice. it, yeah, <laughs> I like that. And getting people to realize that your pressures, and, and you know, we use Wells Fargo as an example of a CEO who led to huge fraud within the business. But the headlines were, were 5,300 managers fired for fraud. And you just sit there and go, hang on a minute, they, they were having to make a choice. Do I commit fraud, which somebody might find out about? Or do I not meet my targets and I will get fired? So looking at that context of that, that manager, that operator at the sharp end, and the decisions they've got to make are influenced by way up leadership. And, and I think that, that there isn't this recognition at that level that says, I have a direct impact on what goes on down there by what I say and what I do. Yeah. Definitely. And, and it just comes back to what you were saying before about systems thinking, you know, every action, all of the thinking and everything that goes on in any organization is, uh, is not an, in isolation. It's actually also responding to the whole system and yeah. it's working out what in that system is affecting this, that's creating the conditions for these things to happen. And quite often we end up into, and you, you mentioned a just culture, we end up in mm. a blame culture where we just poke fingers and say, yeah, it was their fault and therefore we get rid of them. Yeah, definitely. Actually, touching on that and the ability to get that conversation back up was reading um, Simon Sinek's Infinite Game where he talks about uh, Mullally as CEO of Ford who, when he took over and trying to get his senior managers, his senior leaders to say, there must be something wrong going on. Tell me what it is because when he got the progress reports every week or fortnight, whatever it was, it was all green cards, you know, and a traffic light scheme of green, amber and, and red. Everything was green. And he said, look, I don't believe you. There's got to be something there. And eventually somebody, you know, after a number of weeks, put up a yellow card and said, look, actually, it's not quite right. Because the previous boss, the previous CEO, had basically, if you didn't have greens, you're fired. So guess what? Everybody's going to show a green card, even though they know that they were wasting millions of dollars because they weren't doing what they should have done. And by his changing at the CEO level, getting to say, we are going to be a learning organization. We need to understand what is really going on. As, as you talked about with your, your policeman, finding out what was going on, that's the only way that senior leaders can really understand the impact that A, they're having on their workers and what is happening um, at the sharp end as such. Yeah, what they're having to contend with, how they're thinking, how they're solving problems, because all that information kind of feeds back and allows you to support their their work, which is Definitely. what leadership's about. Quite, 
quite a lot of leadership anyway. Um, I've got to say, I love your slogan about counter-errorism. Mm. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Um, do you just want to explain what that means? Yeah, so it's obviously a play on words on counter-terrorism. And in fact, when I, I first put it as a little tagline on LinkedIn, I got a number of people who sent me a private message who said, uh, I think there's a typo in your, uh, in your thing. I went, no, no, it's, it is about counter-errorism. It's about the fact that we are fallible. And what we can do is, you know, errors are um, predictable, preventable, manageable, because we understand human behavior. There's a huge body of evidence that says, this is how people operate. These are more, you know, error likely situations, error producing conditions. So let's look at the conditions, which is again, going back to the business intelligence and safety intelligence from your, your workers. And you're saying, okay, so, if we're going to counter the errors that are there, that's really what it was about, is, is saying, look, and, and it's to grab people's attention because they go, oh, counter, counter errorism. And it, I do have a bit of a, because I've got, um, I've got like a sort of polo shirt I've got at the moment, but I have shirts with a big thing, you know, big sort of logo on the back. And, and I am a bit conscious, I, I was, I'm not so much now, but I was very conscious when I first started traveling in the States with the whole TSA uh, security bit of counter errorism. And it's like, oh, what's that? producing the error producing conditions and when we do make an error building a um, building it so that we've got the capacity to fail safely because we will make mistakes how do we build resilience within a system so that we've got some stretchability rather than as somebody described you know a, a ball coming down and in a fragile system the ball just goes through this sheet of glass what we want is to build the system that's like a big balloon that goes and comes back up again uh, and then we can recover and we may end up going off on a different trajectory but what we haven't done is shattered the system and had a catastrophic failure um, and yeah. it, it's trying to predict predict and prevent that uh, and then manage them when that when things do go wrong yeah it's the kind of resilience and and talib's kind of anti-fragility mm. um yes yeah, and, and uh, there's this, I think there's also this problem of just like uh, organizations have this habit of assigning things to human error, um, you know, which is all part of that, that blame culture, whether you want to just tell us something, because one of the things that I found interesting in the book is this difference between um, errors and violations. Um, and I, I found that really interesting. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. So, um yeah, there's the, when we talk about human error and you know, 70 to 80% of aviation accidents are called by human error. You're like, well, okay, that's, that's not particularly useful. That's like saying that, you know, the, the reason why this book fell off the table is because of gravity. It's like, yeah, okay, thanks. That, that's really helpful. You know, it, it's a bucket that says it, it's something that's worth looking at, but and this is something I put out for the organizations. If you've ever got a report that comes back and says the cause of this accident is human error, you stopped looking um, yeah. because you either ran out of time or you ran out of money or you didn't want to go looking because it was easy to blame that. So we have these sort of buckets that human error, right? There we go. There's a problem. And then we can break that into two sorts of streams. One is honest errors, slips, lapses, and mistakes something that I didn't intend to do. So here's a question for you, David. Can you tell me something that's going to go wrong tomorrow that you don't intend to do? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And, and, and is that, you know, people sit there go, uh, well, hang on a minute. So blaming somebody for something that they didn't intend to do is, is of no value at all. But we can sort of talk about it. We can accept that because that's an honest mistake. Then we get into an, another bucket called violations. And, and the, the violation is quite an emotive word um, because it's, it's about rule breaking. It's about choice. You chose to break the rules. Uh, and because you broke the rules, the accident happened. And then you sit there and go, mm, okay. And there are buckets within the violation. So you've got situational violation. I was unable to do my job if I didn't, by, if I followed the rules. Because the rules you've written to me means that I can't actually do it. But you're rewarding me for productivity. Um, so I'm going to break the rules because that's what I'm being rewarded for. It could be routine violation. And, and as an ex-traffic cop, the example I use all the time is speeding on the motorway. Um, and the average speed that I see is probably 75 to 80, unless there is a police car there who's doing sort of 68 uh, and everybody's queued up going, sneaking by um, because there's a consequence. But we are socially conformal creatures. We like to be part of the herd. And if everybody is breaking the rules, it's easier to break the rule than conform to it. And it takes a lot of mental courage to put uh, your hand up and say, no, I am not going to break the rules. I'm going to follow what, what's there. Um, and then we get um, recklessness, which is the bit where we talk about no thought or care for the consequence. And that's, you know, something that potentially should be punished is the bit. And, uh, but they make such a fraction of the accidents that are out there from the research we've got. Um, we're talking a fraction of a fraction of a percent are accidents are caused by negli genuine negligence, sabotage, um, or, or violations for personal gain. When people are violating for organizational gain, why would you punish them? Because actually they're helping your organization either innovate or get productivity. So there's a bunch of those violations that we as, as an organization paradigm call organizational drift. And that situational and routine violations, that's where you can find out your business and your safety intelligence by going down to the front line and saying, okay, tell me what you do. What are the pressures that we place on you to get the job done? What works and what sucks? Um, and, and so you will understand this gap between work is imagined, which is all this stuff that's written in rules and process guidelines, regulations, inductions, PPE, all of those things that create safety or create performance. And then work is done, which is what really happens at the sharp end. And those workers are managing that gap between imagined and as done dynamically. They are creating safety all the time until they run out of or the system runs out of capacity. And that could be productivity, it could be time, it could be cognitive capacity. And when that happens, we have an accident. So it's this bit that says, how do we build capacity or resilience within the individual, within the team, within the organization that allows us to deal with that dynamic variation that happens all the time. So, you know, errors are this honest mistake. Violations are the dishonest mistake you sit there going really that it's not as simple as that and we need to dig deeper so yep. human error it's a great bucket to throw stuff in it is a 
useless term when it comes to organizational learning or personal learning. Yes, definitely. And, and certainly from a, an uncertainty point of view, um, one of the things that really helps organizations are looking for these emergent kind of properties, these mm-hmm. the patterns in the violations to say, actually, maybe we should be changing things here because if lots of people are doing this or, or an individual's doing this frequently, either we need to get them back online or there's a reason why they're doing this because they're having to make it work. And, yeah. and, and kind of the, the, the simplest example I, I, I came across in psychology was the, 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 the the pathways oh the colleges but paths yeah yeah so with the the gardener who just planted the whole thing and and they were going well where's the paths he said well i'm not doing the paths until i see where people walk and he he then waited for the the bare patches the lines to the bare patches and that's where they put the paths down which you know which is a nice analogy for what organizations quite often don't do is they organize things nice and neatly somebody with a neat brain says this is where you're going to work work and then they find people cutting across the grass then they put up signs of saying keep off the grass so we'll create a violation that actually has like what's the point of that yeah but it's a really nice analogy for what goes on in organizations and the way that they create violations when actually they should be creating pathways yeah which goes back to that bit about human factors is making it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing yeah. so you know you look at healthcare and labeling uh, of drugs mm. um, is making it obvious that you've got two very different drugs even though they've got similar names and the difficulty there is organizations want to have their own branding across all of their packaging and they will have a name that they will change slightly but the meaning might you know it, it, its effect might be slightly different so that there is there's always a conflict that happens and that's again work as imagined work has done it's not necessarily sharp end people that have got the issue it's also the decision makers to yep. saying you know and and how do we manage branding and how do we manage reputation those sorts of things um so this is what human factors is about is taking that systems view and saying how do people operate within a complex adaptive system and make it easy to do the right thing, um, which in, in cutting across the grass, it doesn't really matter if they get it wrong to start with, because that's what experimentation and innovation is about. Yep. But you don't want to be doing that with paralyzing drugs versus healthy <laughs> drugs. Um, <laughs> Just and yet there is, yeah, but there is so much intelligence out there from the incident reporting that's captured. Ah, oh, well, it's, it's the stupid human. If they just paid more attention, then they would pick the right drug up and we wouldn't have these issues. You're right. Okay, yeah. so we fire that person, but we don't change the system. Mm-hmm. Everybody broadly behaves the same way. So why do you think the next person's not going to make those mistakes? Oh, because I've told them not to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why we kind of promote evidence-based decision-making and, and taking evidence from a series of places. Um, mm. But that's that's a, a discussion for another day. I've got a whole load of questions here, but, you know, we're running right. out of time here. So, um, like, can we just kind of, I'm, I'm going to kind of cut it short a little bit and we'll, I'll get you on again because I think there's a lot more that you and I can talk about. Um, so, and this is a horrible thing to do and I apologize for this, but if you had to boil all this down to kind of three main practical takeaways for people in organizations, what would they be? Um, be curious. Uh, we have a natural tendency to be judgmental. Um, 
and, and so be curious, ask the question, how did it make sense for them to do what they did? Um, yeah. Nobody goes to work and most people don't go to work to cause an injury or fatality or damage or mistakes. They're doing the best they can with the resources they've got. Um, be mindful of the shadow you cast. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that at the lower levels you can't influence upwards, but actually it's the bit when you're in the leadership positions, um, you have uh, an influence way below you. Um, and I would also say, um, as a leader, you create, it, it, it's again linked with that shadow, be mindful of the shadow you cast, but try to create an environment where people come to you with the information. Don't expect them to be brave to speak up. You influence them, you know, in a big term at the moment, psychological safety. You as a leader, create that environment. Allow people to feel included, allow people to make mistakes, but allow them to fail safely and we can learn from it. Allow them to contribute and most importantly, encourage them to challenge you. And for that to happen, you've got to provide top cover for them. Yeah. Because if they're coming to you, it's because they're not doing it through malice. They're doing it because they want to improve the team or the organization. Don't shoot them down in flames because if you do, you will just lose all of that. Yes, creating a learning culture and a learning orientation within an organization requires some finesse and, and quite a lot of empathy and the ability to be able to kind of, I, I suppose, kind of tickle it into being almost um, because it's, a, it's kind of a progressive process that is based on psychological safety so people can actually feel safe to kind of speak up to give feedback but also to put the hands up and say actually we've got a problem or I've got a problem or this has happened or I've just done this and it's that kind of error reporting that we see a lot in the aviation industry we're seeing a lot more in the medical industries and I, I suppose this is what you're doing now for um, diving safety as well that's brilliant thank you so much Gareth um, how can people find you or contact you um, easiest way is to go and visit the website humandiver.com um, and contact details are in there. And there's also um, gareth.lock at humaninsystem.co.uk. Um, I used to run a, a sort of another company called Human in a System, which looked at all of human factor stuff, but I now really predominantly focus on, uh, on the diving elements. So humandiver.com. Yeah, I love that diving. idea of human in the system. I thought that was brilliant. When I first saw your email, I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And I'll put a link through to the book. Um, really, you know, if you're interested in errors um, and um, organizational performance, it's a really good book for that. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Gareth. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. And uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Take care. Yeah, you take care. Bye. Bye.